You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and we are rolling right through May here. I'm kind of in shock so as I'm as I'm recording this it's Wednesday this week and you know our episodes drop on Fridays and tomorrow they are forecasting in parts of the state to be in the 20s as the low for the morning and that is absolutely crazy and you know I've, I've been getting a lot of calls on the agronomy side of things you know what's this going to do to wheat you know we've got wheat that's going through reproduction phases or getting close to reproduction phases throughout the state what's that going to do to wheat what's this going to do to any of my emerged soybeans what's this going to do to my corn that i have in the ground oh, there's so many factors that can influence that and you know, the thing i've been telling a lot of people is it's very dependent it's going to be dependent on how much moisture is also involved with this because if there's a heavy dew if there's moisture on those plants that then freezes and causes an actual frost that is going to be a major problem now if it's just cold and we have good wind flow and we end up having a relatively dry condition as we are right now it could be okay but you know, any of you people that are listening to this and you're a food plotter and you've got some, some food plots in the ground, uh, coming out of the ground, something like that, if you get this hard, you know, crazy weather, uh, cold weather, give it about a week. Uh, you're going to need about that much time to see the response from this environmental concern if it actually did something that's going to justify action to replant or something along those lines. Um but, but, yeah, it's crazy to think that we've had that kind of crazy weather. Um, cool cool thing, too, you know, I haven't been, obviously I haven't, I've been out of the turkey hunting game now since I killed 
uh, both my birds the first week. It's so bittersweet killing this early because I hunted three times. And, you know, how great is that to be efficient? You know, you got it done. But the fact of the matter is the kill isn't what was important to me. The hunt is what's important. I miss turkey hunting. I miss waking up in the mornings, going and listening to birds, gobble, working birds, you know, playing the chess match, hearing them coming close, having them surprise you when they, go- they gobble, all that crazy stuff. That's what I love. I love the chase. I love the hunt. And I'm sure plenty of you guys can, uh, can relate to that. Um, but I, I was hoping to, to give anybody that's still got a turkey tag in their pocket a little bit of a encouragement to not give up. And the reason I say that is because uh, this week in my traveling for work, you know, I drive, you know, sometimes 300 plus miles in a day all across the state and farms and stuff. And in my travels, I've seen way more turkey action this week than I did the prior week. You know, the prior week, some of my friends that were hunting and people I were talking to, you know, were, were already going through the complaining of, you know, they're shut down, they're, they're this, they're that, you know, it's over, the turkeys aren't doing turkey things. And uh, just this week, it just flipped on a dime. I've been seeing more birds. And the cool thing is a lot of my friends that have been hunting hard, uh, connected this week. Uh, in fact, I had three turkeys pictures sent to me on Monday afternoon, noon this week. I should say Monday throughout the day. Uh, one of them was uh, the uh, very own Jason Miller that came on the show not that long ago and was talking turkey. He connected on an evening bird. You know, that was Monday was the first day of the afternoon opener for turkey season in Pennsylvania. So really cool to see some birds dropping. Uh, I actually got a picture of a bird killed this morning. You know, that was fairly local to us. And but just been hearing people that have been working birds and having good responses. So, you know, it's not over. I know it's it gets tougher this time of year and birds work differently. But, man, if you can just persevere and uh, continue to grind it out, you still have good opportunity here, especially with uh, the weather conditions we have. I still think if it stays on the relatively cooler side of the mornings, it doesn't shut off as much as if we get summertime conditions, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but yeah, keep grinding out, guys. I hope I wish you the best of luck. But, you know, since I am finished with turkey hunting, I got to keep my mind occupied. I got to try to get it off of turkeys, get into the swing of things with spring, summer work. And uh, that also means the same for deer hunting and getting preparations for deer hunting. And this week's episode, we're back talking a little bit of deer hunting strategy and having a deer hunting fanatic on the show. And this week we're chatting with one of the members of the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network, and that's John Hudspeth from the Oklahoma Outdoors Podcast, believe it or not. Now, the first thing I want to make mention of is, yes, I know when you are comparing uh, geographical differences from Oklahoma to Pennsylvania, there's definitely some vast differences. There's vast differences in the amount of people uh, that hunt you know, and the uh, I could tell you there's a vast difference in the amount of cattle where John hunts compared to the amount of cattle where I hunt. Uh, it's a high, high cattle production area where he's in, and uh, I, I know there's definitely some drastic differences in the hunting and the style there. But but um, I, I wanted to have John on the show because John does um, something that I have done a lot of in my lifetime, and that's tinkering and managing private land farms, 
managing and fine-tuning sets and how they relate to food sources, whether they're natural food sources on a property or if it's an implemented food source like a food plot, which I talk about on this show a ton. Or in John's case where he, you know, he also uses food plots, but he also does, uh, you know, uses feeders. And I know there's so many people that just wrinkle their nose up and say, you know, feeders are cheating. And uh, I don't necessarily believe that. Uh, I think there's an art to utilizing feeders. It doesn't change deer movement. Absolutely, it does. And it's definitely a different way of hunting than if you're used to uh, grinding the public land mountains of Pennsylvania. It's definitely a, a different thing. But there's some, some key interesting things that John has observed over the years in stand placement, specifically blind placement, and then utilizing the property uh, features to move deer through and use those areas in daylight or hunting in a way that relates to the movement to those food plots and feeders. And I think it really, I, I to me, the, the conversation that we had, you know, John leads in and starts off by going through his season. He had an incredible season. He killed two fantastic bucks, one with the muzzle loader and one with the bow in the late season, mind you, in Oklahoma. And, you know, he kind of goes through that story and he talks about uh, the story of, a buck he's been after that's just getting under his skin and slipping away. And it, it leads into the conversation of how he is preparing to move forward on some of his, his projects. And then it also allows us to, to break down a little bit more fine-tune uh, fine a little bit more, so to speak, his thought process of why the locations of certain food plots, why the locations of stands, why the location of blinds, how are you accessing those appropriately to hunt them consistently and connect on mature deer in daylight? Because that's the name of the game. Um, it, it can be, you know, like I said, we, we've already said this, I've, I've, I've made pretty good emphasis on this, that yes, I know there are differences between Oklahoma and Pennsylvania, but I don't care, um, you know, about that necessarily, because what I do care about is anybody who hunts mature deer, whatever part of the country you're in, everybody that I know that's good at it talks about how a mature buck is a slightly different animal than the rest of the herd. And it's, you know, a a four, five, six plus year old buck is a different buck than a two or a three year old buck as far as their maturity. And the, the, the difficulty that can occur in trying to harvest them. And I think it takes, um, good strategy to have good success and John's no stranger that he targets mature deer and uh, like I said there's so many people across the country that that preach that so I just thought you know I've listened to John's podcast a couple of times I've had some conversations with him in the in the past um, off the air and you know I, I just think his approach to private land is is really helpful even here in the, in Pennsylvania so yeah, I think this is a great episode to relate to. I think the timeliness of this is one, first of all, to get your blood flowing again for whitetails as we're getting into summertime and summer preparations. But now's the time to be doing those preparations in, the, in those uh, those stands, those locations, and making sure that your access is foolproof and, uh, and trying to do everything in your best power to connect on the deer that you're trying to harvest this year. So uh with uh, without further ado, let's get to this episode real quick before we do. I uh, just want to make a shout out to the, sh- the, 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 the companies that just support us and make this happen. 
and first and foremost that's Radix Hunting and what better intro than, uh, than to mention their Monarch Hunting Blinds. They have a soft-sided Monarch and a hard-sided Monarch, you know, one that's going to be a little bit more uh, closed in, a little bit more uh, sealed in scent proof. And I tell you what, my experience in hunting and blinds of such, if you have a property that lays out well to have such blinds, man, that investment is worth it as far as the experiences and the close interactions you get. And the Monarch Hunting Blind has that capability. And in addition to that, Radix is known for their awesome trail cameras. Guys, it's that time we're getting closer. I don't hardly have any trail cameras out yet. I'm thinking about it. I'm hoping to make a push sometime in early summer. Uh, I got some cameras that have been soaking all year long that I still have not got to, but I'll, I'll probably replace. And I'm, I'm probably going to put a couple more of the Gen Series cameras out. Check out the Gen 600, and I want to increase my cell cameras. And I think probably the most affordable thing for me is to go with the M-Core cell camera. They are uh, very affordable and, and cost-effective. But the, the best thing with these stuff, with these cameras, guys, they have awesome image quality. So uh, check them out. I really encourage you to check them out. And if guys, if you're local to Southeast Pennsylvania, you're not far drive. Uh, Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania. They are a dealer for Radix cameras. You can get your hands on them. You can check them out buy them in person and while you're at it you can check out all the other awesome things that little mountain outfitters has to offer so hey let's get to this episode hey on the phone with us tonight we got a fellow podcast host on the sportsman's empire i, I love doing these uh doing these episodes with you know fellow hosts on the network just because it's fun to converse with these guys and I like trying to get as many of them on my show as possible just because it's they're fun to connect with but tonight we're talking with John Hudspeth from the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast and uh, John's on the road tonight little little bit of uh, fun travels for you so John thanks for coming on and what's happening absolutely man uh, just trying to you know make the most of uh, my life right now so uh, my wife is going to be out of town for the next couple days, and uh, my sister, I was telling you before we hit record, uh, my sister gave me an awesome gift a couple of years ago and married a Nebraska farm boy, and so I got my daughter loaded up, my nine-month-old daughter, and we are headed to Nebraska to, to chase some Merriam turkeys. Did you, did, was that like, was there a sign-off permissioning, like you had to accept that she could marry this guy? Like, yep, this fits all the criteria I need from you. Pretty much, <laughs> yep, pretty much, yeah. So, uh, he he's huge, he could definitely beat me up uh, if he wanted to, but uh, you know what, he's a good guy, and like I said, his family owns a bunch of farm ground, so I'll, I'll let it slide. <laughs> I guess you will. There's nothing wrong with access to farm hunting ground. I think that trumps a lot of things in the mind of a hunter. It does, it does. especially when that state has a September 1st opener. Is that right? Is that when Nebraska opens? Mm -hmm. It is, yep. And so usually you got a few days in there where you can chase some velvet bucks. And so I went up there uh, last year, but I only got to hunt two days. It was a very last-minute uh, thing. Um, and just, and I'd never, I'd never been there before, you know, had never stepped foot on any of the ground. Um, I got there and like all the Onyx tents that I had set ahead of time, uh, come to find out my brother-in-law's brother had dirt bike tracks going all through that place. Uh, so it was very much a, uh, fly by the season pants hunt. Mm. Um, but, but man, I had fun. I learned a lot. Um, 
and uh, so yeah, that's a little bit of this trip is, yeah, I'm not a huge turkey hunter. Um, I had a, a great experience last year that kind of lit the fire inside of me, but uh, usually when I go turkey hunting, it turns into a deer scouting trip. So most likely that's what this is going to turn into also. Yeah, I can echo that. I when I was younger, you know, I guess when when you've got youth and you got ambition, you, you, you're you want to hunt everything and you're going to indulge 100 mm-hmm. percent into everything. I think the older you get, the more you fine tune what you're interested in. And I was I was always like, as it narrowed down, it went down to like just deer hunting, turkey hunting, and bear hunting in Pennsylvania. Now it's getting down to like mm-hmm. just deer hunting and just bear hunting because turkeys, while I love turkey hunting, I love chasing spring gobblers with my work schedule. Uh, it just makes it so hard to really invest and say I'm hunting turkeys. Now I still go turkey hunting, but I just feel like I'm out there trying to trying to find a turkey in the mood that wants to play the game and come in goblin, and that's about mm-hmm. it. Like the the time investment of trying to actually be a good turkey hunter and kill a turkey, it's just it's just not happening for me in the springtime. But yeah, yeah I know what you mean. Like this, the first day of our season, so we don't open up in turkey season here until. It's April 29th, I think, this year. So mm-hmm. I'm planning on going this year. I've been really on a kick. I want to try to kill a bear with my bow in Pennsylvania. So the first weekend, mm-hmm. I'm going to a cabin with family, and it's going to be a camaraderie thing. But I have the mindset on that weekend, as well as a couple of the ex- the other weekends where I'll be able to go out and turkey hunt, I'm going to hunt new ground with the mindset of I'm exploring and scouting and learning ground to hopefully connect this fall on a bear and if i happen to run across a turkey i'm okay with that and if i don't it's Mm -hmm. okay it's time well spent the way i look at it gotcha awesome man man i i'm jealous of the pennsylvania bears by the way uh i would love to come up there and knock around at some time I'll gladly trade a Oklahoma hog hunt for a Pennsylvania bear trip. <laughs> you don't have to trade. You sure. can just come. You're welcome anytime. Okay. It's uh, right. the I, it's such an interesting like. I, I've just been trying to learn as much as I possibly can about bear and bear hunting because I've just noticed diff- different cycles in our state and you know certain people and the, the trends and things. They like you'll go. I'll just think about some cabins in central Pennsylvania that I've hunted or, or been around people that I have hunted. And there's times where like one cabin will bring 10 to 15 bear out in one hunting season. You go, Holy cow, 10 to 15 bear in the mountains of Pennsylvania. Now it's like, you know, certain, some of those places where they would kill 10, you know, five, 10, 15, whatever. If they kill one or two, it's, it's really good. And, you know, I was scratching my head and, it's just been cyclical with our mass crop. And, you know, there's certain areas that produce consistently. Uh, you know, with a lot of the places that I bear hunt, I mean, we average like killing one a year with our 18 guys. Uh, we've had years where we shot at five of them and killed one or two. And we've had years where we didn't see any. You know, this year was a rough year. The mass crop just wasn't there. But it's it's one of those things that, like, I Again, I'd say I go bear hunting, and I've gone bear hunting since I've legal age to go hunting, and it's an animal that intrigues me, but I never would consider myself a bear hunter. And I, I guess that's like the next thing that I want to indulge in and, and something. But mm-hmm. I, I got to ask you, I'm, I'm, I'm tangenting. I wanted to go back to you. So what was <laughs> Mrs. Hudspeth's reaction when you said, hey, I got to expand my hunting season by September 1st this year? <laughs> Oh, she was not a fan. Uh, so, oddly enough, uh, 
uh, when me and her were dating, we actually broke up for just a little bit. Uh, and it just so happened that we broke up during deer season. And then we got married about a week into the next deer season. Uh, so when we got married, she had never experienced a deer season with me or a hunting season in general. Um, and so she got a very rude awakening, uh, but you know, she was, she was well-worn and, you know, she'd seen all my mouth and stuff. She knew and And my wife is awesome. Um, I, I did an episode with her actually back around New Year's. Uh, I really encourage people to go back and listen to it. And we talked about, you know, the balance of, of family and hunting. And, and now that we have a, a child and everything. Um, but yeah, it just, I think also getting more plugged into the sportsman's empire is not her dream also. Uh, you know, I had some of the guys down this last weekend for a hog hunting trip, uh, just like talking to you, you know, maybe going to Pennsylvania. And so, uh, yeah, I, I can't say it's her favorite thing, but it, it kind of works out. She, she works in youth ministry. Um, and so her spring and summer are usually really busy. Um, and so by the time fall rolls around, I usually have a pretty good amount of, uh, of brownie points saved up. Well, that's, that's good. I, so much of what you're saying, I'm just thinking, yep, I can relate. Yep. I can relate. Yep. That sounds like my life. I, and I, I can't lie, man. I've, I've talked about it a bunch of my shot. I will say, um, folks, if you're listening to this and if you haven't checked out John's podcast, I've listened to a number of John's episodes and you, you've got some great hunting stuff and you've also got some great family stuff and connecting the two, which I really appreciate i i try to do the same thing in my show but that episode you did with your wife it was so funny because i listened to that i'm like oh my gosh this is like this is exactly first of all what i needed to hear and second of all i can relate so well to it so then what was funny is um you know the episode that i just did a few weeks ago um i was i was speaking with our guest and he said you know include your family in your show you know people like when you're real with them so i had i had john hudspeth's episode with his wife on my mind in addition to this gentleman who was on my show saying that and i brought that to my wife said hey i got multiple sources say that you should be in you know included in my show what do you think she's like get out of here that is not happening (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 i had been thinking about doing it for a while and my wife she was kind of so so like she i wouldn't say she necessarily was super excited about it but said she would and it just so happened we recorded that between christmas and and new year's because i had trouble getting the guests that week um but man i got a ton of feedback from it so i'm definitely glad we did it and I think we're going to try to make it a yearly thing, you know, as, uh, as our daughter gets older, you know, maybe hopefully another kid down the line. Um, so yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm all about it. I do. I, I try to keep locations fairly, uh, you know, on the down low cause I, you know, I'm being very open with people about deer that I'm chasing, you know, my hunting and everything. And so I, I try not to say towns or anything like that, but I'm, I try to be fairly open with, you know, family stuff, hunting, just like you said. It's a game we play. I mean, it's a, you, you want to be as open and real with everybody we listen to, but at the same time, you don't want to you don't want to give them all the you know the last four of your social and everything else at the same time with <laughs> exactly. the show. It's a, it's a fun card you play, but the you know the the changing in life, you know, getting into into marriage. I mean, that's one of those things that I, I keep talking about so much, and I'm talking about it because good lord it's just it was overwhelming the change in my life and and realizing the things that i needed to have brought to to my 
you know, my own self-interest, like just having my mm-hmm. eyes open to what was on my heart and what needed to change on my heart for the better. Because I realized, that, you know, my priorities were not in line for that. So it's and and you, you and I talked about this, you know, in the past off air and stuff. And it's just so, it's just one of those things that nobody's talking about, but everybody's living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, like getting married wasn't too big of an adjustment again I, I have an amazing wife and she is super independent and so if i wanted to go hunt for a weekend she was like hey you go ahead and go like i'm gonna have my girlfriends over or i'm gonna go you know have a girls night whatever um but man adding a kid that did definitely change things um especially so my daughter was i think four months old on opening day of deer season this year so she wasn't sleeping through the night um you know she was still waking up two or three times during the night had to be you know watched all the time you know you couldn't leave her in the other room or anything so it was definitely an adjustment this year i, I got super lucky still had a great uh deer season um but it, it was a different i think I, I i keep track of how many sits i do every year um and i was down about 40 percent on my sits this year so it definitely changes some things oh kids change everything and i, I don't say that in a bad way i, I say it in as positive mm-hmm. ways you can but i mean the same way like when when you were dating or married without kids it was hey i'm gonna go do this all right let me know when you're coming home just keep me posted and, mm-hmm. and now it's like hey mm-hmm. when are you coming home it's it's a it's yeah, different and exactly it's, yeah it's just just shift and stuff but yeah you did uh, you really did have a, a pretty great hunting season i was following along and listening to some of your some of your crazy stories that you had you had some some really really interesting things happen to you throughout this year throughout your whitetail season and your trips and everything else and you know i'm i'm uh i try to re you know everybody that we have on our show you know whether where, whatever their background is or whatever whatever part of the country that they're from i love to try to connect it back and it's relatable to to our area and one of the things that i've i've noticed in your shows and just you know back and forth and stuff like you, you know you have some similarities in the hunting style that i do and while we're different parts of the country i'd, I'd love to kind of pick your brain on a couple of those things but before we do that man re- recap your your season in a nutshell like the the highlights and the the stuff that you'd uh, you'd like to bring everybody up to speed if they haven't uh, listened so far oh man let's see if i can think back that far so uh so i started in nebraska um went up there i think i actually drove up there on opening day on september 1st and got to hunt the evenings of the second and the third um was not successful um again you know i was purely e-scouting you know never set foot learned a ton um i would i would absolutely suggest to anyone to do a hunt like that whether it's public or private doesn't matter but just go somewhere where you've never hunted before because it it just forces you to learn and read deer sign and i learned so much in those two days that it's just unbelievable Mm. Um, you know hunting the same property over over and over again is great because you get to learn it you know that deer movement but you kind of stop learning in a way um, because again, you just, you kind of know where the deer are, you know, their habits. Um, so going somewhere different uh, is great. And a, another example of that, so was unsuccessful in Nebraska, came home. Um, I tried to do a little bit more hunting on public this year um, because we, we used to have two properties. Uh, we're down to one property now. And I, so I lost a lot of my hunting spots. Um, so I started hunting in public a little bit, just to kind of expand my horizons. And I found the same thing that, and I like 
this public ground is like a 15 minute drive from my private ground. But again, just being on that new ground, having to figure things out again, I was just learning stuff like crazy. Um, so anyway, um, did a little bit of hunt. I sat two or three times on public, uh, had some does, but no bucks. Um, but again, with the new baby, I knew I was going to have limited time. And so I told my wife, I was like, all right, there's three weekends that I really want to hunt. Um, the first one was the last weekend of October, which is the last weekend of our muzzleloader season in Oklahoma. And then the first weekend of November is always Texas rifle opener. And I have a buddy who lets me hunt on his lease. Um, and then the third one, I, I can't remember if I had a date for the third one or not. Oh, the third one was my elk hunt. That's right. That's right. Um, so yeah, so starting out, um, I, I got to hunt a little bit in October, but you know, usually it was like drive up there, hunt the afternoon and drive home, you know, be home to help the baby. Um, uh, but that first or that last weekend in October, I just love that weekend. Um, our property, for whatever reason, it just seems like the bucks start running a little bit earlier than most parts of the state. Um, and, uh, but unfortunately we had a crazy weather system come through. Um, it rained and rained for days and days. And on the last evening, the rain finally cleared out. And I was like, man, I just know these bucks are going to be on their feet. Cause they've been, you know, pushed down. Um, so I, I went and sat a stand that I hadn't hunted all year. Um, I was actually after a different buck, um, that we'll get into later. And, uh, but ended up, um, had a really nice 10 point come down the, the property line, hitting scrapes, um, and was able to take him with my muzzle loader at about 75 yards. Um, beautiful 10 point. Um, and then, so the next weekend went to Texas. I'll try to speed things up. Went to my buddy's place in Texas. Um, rut was on full swing, but just didn't find the deer that I was after. Um, he manages that place like crazy. And so he's, you know, very much five-year-olds and older type mm-hmm. thing it's your stereotypical texas hunt um box blinds and feeders some darrows um it's a really really fun but also just you know like i said he's very picky so unsuccessful there um and then i don't think i hunted a single day i hunted one day in november on my own property but most of it i was just saving up for my elk hunt so i, was, I uh drew a fourth season colorado elk rifle tag um for those of you a lot of people have heard the story um first day of the hunt or before the hunt i stayed in denver colorado in a hotel and was going to drive on to camp the next day uh that next morning i walk into my hotel room and my truck was gone along with all my stuff my four-wheeler uh yeah somebody stole my truck i was actually my dad's truck stole the truck out of the parking lot um and the trip didn't get much better after that i ended up going to cabela's spending about a thousand bucks on new gear, you know, stuff I didn't really want, but just stuff that it was all they had left. Um, still went on the hunt, got my butt handed to me all week. Mm. Um, we had an early snowstorm. Uh, so, you know, it was like two feet deep of snow, a lot of places. I'd actually bought snowshoes, believe it or not. I was probably the only person in Oklahoma who owned snowshoes. <laughs> um, but those were, those were stolen out of the truck. So that was no good. Uh, I brought my four-wheeler to help with the snow, uh, but that had gotten stolen, so that was no good. And so a buddy of mine, we basically just got our butts kicked all week, um, but came back home. Uh, my wife was very understanding with how the trip ended up going, so got to hunt a little bit more. And uh, I had this one buck. I love late season. Late season is my favorite. 
I know a lot of people, they say, you know, if I got one day to hunt, I'd choose November 7th. I would probably choose either December 28th or January 8th, one of those late season days. Um, so, yeah, this year for the second year in a row on December 28th, I, I ended up shooting a really nice big eight point with my bow. Uh, same stand, actually. Same day and same stand as the year before. Mm. Um, so that kind of capped out my, my deer season. So Oklahoma is a two-buck state, and uh, I've been on a, a heck of a roll lately. I think this is my fourth year in a row to, to fill both my buck tags. So I'm I'm very fortunate. Yeah, very fortunate. And, you know, let's face it. I always think no matter how prepared you are, there's always an element of luck with hunting, but you know, with the consistency that you're doing it, um, you're doing something right and you're well-prepared. And I think that's what attributes to a great part of your success. And I, I kind of wanted to dive a little bit into that, you know, with this time of year, um, you know, you, you and I were talking about not really being much of turkey hunters. We're thinking about whitetails, like we're thinking about preparation mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, I want to get the backstory a little bit on like the, the property dynamic that you hunt. You know, you said mm-hmm. you had two properties. Now you're hunting one property. You have mm-hmm. to drive up to like, what does that look like for you as far as the, the, the property? Is it a family property? Is it a mm-hmm. lease? Like, what does that look it- like? So it is a family property. Um, my brother was in the army for eight years. Um, he lived in Italy for three years and Germany for two years and was finally just ready to be home. And, uh, when I was a kid, my family was into ranching and farming. Uh, my dad grew up straight up cowboy horse every day, the whole nine yards. Um, but he had kind of gotten out of all that, but my brother wanted to get back into it and uh, so we bought this property all together, um, and uh, so yeah, it's it's very unique. I tell people that all the time. It's and it's honestly pretty lucky because it's it's not what you would see or imagine as a hunting property. Um, the county we're in is one of the top cattle producing counties in the entire United States, um, and so you get a it's a lot of Bermuda grass pasture that is worthless for whitetail. But there's just enough topography, just enough little scattered woodlots um, to hold some really nice deer. Um, and so it's, it's a large property, and it, it's deceiving. Um, I'll go, it's, it's a 1,000 acres, um, which I was telling some of the other sportsman's guys who were just down here on a hog hunt. Um, I know up in the northeast that probably sounds like the biggest thing ever, but around here, that's not that uncommon. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a lot of property, don't get me wrong, a lot of property. But if I tell someone from around here, you know, we have a thousand acre property, that's not like an eyebrow raising type thing. Right. Um, but, but again, it's, it's a cattle property. So 800 of that thousand acres is wide open pasture where a whitetail would not be caught dead in. Um, but in the very back, we have this, you know, 200 acre section with a big draw. And, uh, and the biggest thing, the closest county road to that section is, I think, a mile and a half. So just very secluded. Um, we have big neighbors all the way around us. That's kind of changing. Uh, one of our neighbors just sold, and they're, they're splitting it up into smaller tracks and selling it. Mm. So I'm hoping that doesn't affect me too much. But it's just it's a little hidden gem. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to where, you know, I've, I've killed some good deer. I'm not afraid to, to let deer walk. Um, I basically get it to myself. Uh, my brother hunts a little bit but not much um my sisters don't really hunt anymore they used to 
Um, so I kind of just had this little, little playground to myself. Um, I do have my, uh, my nephew, my brother's oldest boy, he did kill his first deer this year. Um, so that's exciting. I'm very excited for him, but it, it does change the dynamic a little bit, you know, like, uh, when that, when that two year old walks out there, I'm not going to say, Hey, don't you dare shoot that. Right. Um, cause I, again, I'm, I'm in it for the family. I want, you know, I want him to have the same opportunities that I had when I was young. Um, but man, like I said, very, very, very unique property. And I know I'm lucky. I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the rundown. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the, the property dynamic you're talking about, there are to, there are a ton of people out there that would probably point fingers, make accusations. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. if I had that piece, I could do this and that, blah, blah. But the, there's a couple things. First of all, um, you're, you're put into a situation with, with family that allowed you to do that. And we're, we're all bestowed blessings of somehow in life. And, and I, I think it's nothing to take for granted. And number two, the one thing I'd like to say is the, the, the property – in, that you're hunting, you know, being a maybe a little bit of a diamond in the rough, I guess is how I would interpret it as you're describing it. Y- you've had to have been able to learn some incredible things about whitetails with whitetails doing things whitetails do in their own world with with little human pressure and, and stuff like that that's allowed you to be successful not just on that property but other places just because of that interaction with whitetails. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's a great place to, to study. Uh, I've learned a ton about how deer use topography um, because that's, I've never really hunted topography. You know, it's pretty darn flat down here, um, but this place is pretty rugged. Um, what, my favorite stand on the whole place is, uh, I call it the saddle. And unfortunately, it's pretty much just a muzzleloader and rifle stand um, because there's nowhere to put a, a tree stand down in the saddle. But just it's, it's some of the best natural deer movement i've ever seen um, because it's thick cover on both sides the top is is was wide open pasture i i recently put about an acre and a half food plot in there just to you know get deer to kind of slow down as they come through it um but yeah it, it, it is a very unique learning opportunity as well you're right do you so obviously the majority of this property it has a purpose it's it's generating revenue mm-hmm. and that's how you guys can afford to, yeah. to do this now you've got a section that yeah. you're able to use as your your playground a little bit so talk a mm-hmm. little bit about that balance like I'm I'm curious in your you know we've kind of classified it as like a 200 acres of your of your play land mm-hmm. does it ever is there ever any overlap on the cattle side of things or is that pretty much for you to there, do as you wish and you know it, it's that that piece is your canvas to paint how you wish almost uh I wish it was a little bit more my side but again like we did not buy this property whatsoever for hunting it, it was meant to be a ranching property and that's what we use it for um but this back section because it's a little rougher and because it's, there's a big creek at the base of the hill it's a little bit harder to access um so we don't use it much for cattle but the grass back there it, it instead of uh bermuda it's actually still native grass so there's a lot of stem indian grass that type of thing um and so kind of the the uh, compromise we've come up with is typically we do not put cattle back there all summer and all fall. I kind of get it for deer season. Um, but the, because that native grass, it holds its uh, nutrition much more than 
uh, Bermuda or fescue or your typical grasses. And so after deer season is over, my brother and my dad and stuff, we'll usually turn the cows back there for a little bit, let them eat some of that native grass, utilize that land, you know, save on the feed bill a little bit, uh, and then pull them. Uh, now this last year, unfortunately, that's not the way it worked because we had a terrible drought down here, just like most of the country. And they were completely out of grass. And so they ended up turning them back there in the middle of the summer. Um, really hurt it. I had done a big, like, 30-acre burn back there that I was all excited about. Um, but the cattle just kind of came in and, and decimated it a little bit. And then we still didn't get any rain. And so it didn't have a chance to kind of bounce back before before season. Um, so it, it definitely hurt it. And, and I saw the effect this year. I just There weren't as many deer back there as usual. Um, but, uh, but, but like I said, in a typical year, yes, it's kind of my playground. Um, I have some food plots back there, um, depending on the time of year, uh, you know, if we're turning the cows back there, I can, I can use an electric fence, kind of cut those off and the cows don't decimate it. Um, I can do some controlled burns. And so I, I have pretty good control, but not total control. Mm. Yeah. That, uh, like I said, we can, we can, uh, echo that in properties in our neck of the woods too, for very similar things even though we're talking about different different structure and property type and mm-hmm. and you know grassland versus woodlots and everything else um one of the big reasons that i wanted to chat with you is uh because it's open open land i, I know you do um a decent amount of hunting in box blinds or or maybe uh, tripod stands and stuff like that and i i really wanted to pick your brain i know you are after one specific buck for a number of years it's been probably putting some gray hair in your head and i wanted to kind of peel some of the layers back of your pursuit with this deer and then i wanted to kind of tie in how you are going about stand locations and blind management because um i think it's a really valuable tool when you're talking about properties of this nature absolutely um so yeah that that was kind of a newer development this year um so just back to kind of the property makeup the guy the old man who kind of put this property together back in the day um passed away a few years ago that's kind of how we got it but he he was i mean straight cowboy did not care about wildlife and uh he clear cut basically the entire property uh in 2008 um and so logged it well i don't think he even logged it. i think he just dozed it and burned it but you know he just he's trying to get as much grass as possible mm-hmm. um so because of that there are i mean maybe five trees on the whole thousand acre property that you can hang a tree stand in and there's a few more than that but you know where you would want to deer hunt there's basically nowhere to, to hang a tree stand um, so one of the deals I kind of made with my dad and brother when we sold that other property, which is where I did most of my hunting, um, is that we used some of that money to buy some box blinds. And so this year I got four, uh, they're banks, stumps, stump fours. Um, absolutely love them. I love the window setup and everything. Um, and so, so this was my first year getting to, to hunt out of those. And, and I bought those because you can rifle hunt or bow hunt out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so the buck you're referring to, uh, this year I took the call on him the 2% buck because every year I give myself about a 1% chance of killing him. This year I thought I would have a little better shot. 
Um, I think the whole cows, you know, grazing in the summer screwed me up a little bit. So this year I gave myself a, a 2% chance. Um, but just a the most beautiful, big 10-point you can imagine. Um, I actually passed him as a three-year-old um, going through that saddle I was just telling you about. Uh, passed him during rifle season. And that was the last time I saw him until this year and with my own eyes. Um, and that when I passed him, he was a three-year-old. And this year, I believe he was seven. Mm. Um, so he, we, we have some history. Um, oddly enough, I never saw or got a single picture of him as a four-year-old. Um, I thought he might have been killed. But the next year, he came right back. Um, he was the most visible as a five-year-old. And by visible, I mean I got the most pictures of him. But I think I want to say that year I got 100% nighttime pictures. Um, and then the next year, which would have been last year as a six-year-old, he was less visible, but uh, more, a little bit more daylight active. I think I got three daylight pictures of him last year. Um, and, and he, but he was all over the place. In the past, he had always been at this one. Uh, stand. Um, we called it the cemetery pasture. There's an old cemetery in it. Um, but in that, it was a 50 acre pasture, and in that pasture was one tree. <laughs> so mm. I had my stand in that one tree, and we're a bait state, so I had a feeder there. Um, but uh, so I got lots of pictures of them, but they were always at night. And I, and I knew it was because I wasn't close enough to his bedding. Um, he beds on the neighbors, I'm fairly certain. But I, I had no other option because that was the one tree. And so, um, man, I ran I ran that feeder for probably two years with that stand there and probably only hunted that stand maybe twice because my only hope was that he would just get so comfortable with that feeder that he would start daylighting. But that just never happened. Mm. Um, and so this year, um, you know, learned a little bit more about him last year. Like I said, I got some more pictures of him in the back and, uh, during the rut and everything. And so this year I bumped him up from a 1% ch- chance of killing him to a 2% chance. Um, unfortunately, he took a big step back antler-wise, um, but still still a very, very nice deer. Uh, but so because of that box blind, I was able to move to the complete other side of the pasture where I thought it would be closer to his bedding, uh, moved the feeder over there and everything, um, set one box blind up in that saddle, um, I, I set up a tripod, um, on the other side of the saddle, um, on a trail that I know. And then I hung another tree stand, um, at a creek crossing. So, um, between that saddle and the feeder where I was getting those pictures, there's a big creek. Um, and so I basically went to the bottom of the hill where there was a fence line kind of acting as a funnel, um, uh, put a tree stand there so that I could hunt there if I thought I needed to. <laughs> Excuse me. And really just put a lot of eggs into the basket of killing this buck. Um, but I think, uh, once again, so from five to six, I got less pictures. And then from six to seven, I got less pictures. Um, I had one really, really cool close encounter with him. Uh, I was, I was hunting in that box blind in the cemetery pasture. And uh, I was watching, I had a few deer out in front of me in the pasture. And then I just, just for some odd reason, looked out the back window and I saw four does on this hillside way out in the middle of the wide open pasture. There's kind of a, a brushier draw down below it. Um, but I was, I was like, oh, that's kind of odd. I, I just never see deer over there. 
And then, uh, so I looked back in front of me watching those deer, turned back around through that back window, and I just see the most giant body of any white tail I have ever seen. Pull up my binoculars, and sure enough, it's old 2%. And so I think, like I said, I, I guess that'd be four years since I had seen him in person. Mm. And uh, just, just absolutely no doubt that it was him. Um, again, just a huge body. This would, this would have been December uh, before Christmas. I want to say this is around December 14th-ish, somewhere in there. So kind of post-rut. You know, he, he, he saw those does but wasn't really interested in them. Um, and I, I immediately start trying to make a game plan on this buck. I, I was about to climb out of the stand and see if I could make a, uh, a stock on him because again, I, yeah, I've been after this deer for four years and never even seen it with my own eyes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm playing all the, the thoughts through my mind, you know, whether I make a, a stock on him or not, there's two big draws in between me and him, but he's just in the wide, wide open. Uh, so there's just no way I could get with him. Rifle was over. I was bow hunting. Um, so sitting there watching, I uh, got about, I don't know, 20 minutes of light left, trying to figure out if I'm enough time. The wind isn't great. Um, and so while I'm playing all, all this through my mind, all of a sudden he turns and starts coming to me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this might happen. And so uh, I, I knew the path he was on that he was going to be downwind of me. Um, deer always do that. I wouldn't say always, but any mature buck is always going to be downwind when they come into a feeder. Killing a mature buck over a feeder is very difficult. Um, people think baiting and stuff makes it easy. These deer are smart and they know what they're doing. Um, so as I see him coming, I close all the windows I can. Um, so I lose, you know, he goes down in that ravine. I lose sight of him. Um, I'm looking around. It's just getting darker. I'm checking the clock, make sure I'm shooting light. And uh, and all of a sudden, I look over, and he's at the fence line. He's about 50 yards. And my heart jumps through my throat. <laughs> and I'm like, this is actually going to happen. And so I knew he had to jump that fence and go through my downwind side. I, I think I had my Ozonics with me randomly. I'm pretty sure I was running my Ozonics. Um, he hops the fence and luckily kind of jogs, jogs straight through my wind without stopping. I open the, the front left window and the, 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 the very front window. Um, he stops in that front left window and I range him at 44 yards. Um, and I just, you know, he was on kind of high alert. Again, it's, it's getting really dark. There's about three to four minutes of legal light at this point. And I just didn't feel comfortable taking that shot with my bow. Um, and, and I just assumed he was going to come and jump in the feeder pen and be right at the feeder at 20 yards. So I let him go through that window. Uh, instead, of, instead of coming to the feeder, he actually did another big circle all the way around. I mean, he just, these deer are just so cautious when they get into, into a feeder situation. Um, so I'm sitting there. I, I'm clipped in. I mean, I am ready. I'm, I'm in kill mode. Uh, calm my heart down. I'm, you know, controlling my breathing. I'm whispering to myself, aim low, aim low, because I always tend to shoot high on deer. Um, and, and finally he turns and he's coming in and, and I'm, I'm like, man, this is finally going to happen. And then out of nowhere, uh, a stupid half drink water bottle that I left in that blind during rifle season, as that sun went down, you know, getting colder and that water bottle popped. 
because of it expanding or contracting whatever and made this, this super loud plastic cracking noise and that deer turned around and walked out of my life forever. <laughs> if you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their 1-2 planting system. The system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizeseed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Radix Hunting was founded on premium grade trail cameras and continues striving to produce the best cellular and conventional trail cameras on the market today. The Gen 600 is a second generation camera from the Gen series line. With premium video and audio recording capabilities, this product has become well respected as the HD video trail camera. In addition to the Gen series cameras, their M-Core cellular camera has all the features of a quality cell camera at an affordable price. Along with their cameras, they offer stick and pick trail camera accessories to allow you to set your cameras just right. You can find it all at RadixHunting.com and be sure to follow Radix Hunting on Instagram and Facebook. Want to check out Radix cameras in person? Stop in at Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania and have a peek. Now, back to the show. Yeah, oh, that's an absolute ridiculous story. And it, it, something tells me that mm-hmm. you just weren't supposed to shoot that deer at that moment in time. I, and, I guess not. I guess not. But, I mean, uh, the, it leaves another year for the journey, right? And, like, you were talking about right. the <clears throat> the blinds and, and shooting mature deer at blinds and feeders and mm-hmm. stuff. So, like, do you uh, – so you you have food plots, but you also run feeders because it's it's legal in Oklahoma mm-hmm. to bait. Do you view feeders and food plots any differently from the sense of hunting strategy and how deer utilize them? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think when people say feeders are cheating, I do not agree with that. Um, you know, I don't see I don't see a big difference in having a feeder and then brush hogging you know, a couple rows of corn right in front of your stand. I don't see a big difference in that. Um, I will say, like, deer feel more comfortable in a food plot than they do approaching a feeder uh, because just, you know, the deer can spread out more. There's not so much scent concentrated in one spot. Um, feeders also bring in a lot of predators. Um, you know, raccoons will come up and eat the corn. Uh, there's so much deer scent there that coyotes often come by and check them. Um, so I would say you, you, deer will feel more comfortable in a food plot situation. Uh, that being said, typical argument, but I mean, it's true. Everybody here runs feeders. And so if you're not running a feeder, there's a very good chance that the deer are going to be on your neighbors and not on your spot. Um, so I, I do a combination of both. I just think the more you can do, the better. Um, over the years, I've learned how to effectively hunt feeders, but I'm also not just reliant on feeders. You know, I'd still have stands and stuff that are on trails or food, you know, food plots, field edges, all that stuff, just like anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, but if, if you want to successfully hunt a deer over a feeder, um, your access is huge. 
and your wind is huge, you know, just like any any other stand. But I think it's even more so because you're you're routine, routinely having deer come to the exact same spot over and over again. And so they learn that spot because their life depends on it. You know, they learn every inch of that spot. Um, so having, you know, finding ways that you can get in and out clean, hunt it effectively, and only hunt it when the time is right. I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. They, they buy one or two feeders. And because there's a concentration of deer there, they hunt there every single time. And that is, you're just not going to kill a mature, especially bow hunting. Your rifle hunting is a little different when you can back up 100 yards. But if you're trying to get that deer at 20 yards, um, there's just no room for errors. Right. So Pennsylvania is uh, is not a baiting state. I, I think the only baiting you're allowed to do is in the off season. You must have all remnants of that site removed 30 days prior mm-hmm. to the start of our season. Um, so I've never personally hunted over uh, feeder stations or, or bait mm-hmm. stations, so to speak, but I'm huge in the world of food plots, love food plots, and love the strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mind, you know, you can correct me if this is a, if the wrong way of viewing this. I actually viewed feeders to be a little bit more difficult as far as mature buck mm-hmm. hunting than food plots for, for some of the reasons you mentioned. Another one is, you know, with a, with a feed station or a bait, like you're putting more human interaction at that location than you would mm-hmm. on a food plot. You know, I plant a food plot. I do my, uh, my preparations and such. And then, you know, especially now with cell cameras, like I don't go to a food plot unless I'm going in to hunt and, you know, we've got your access and stuff nailed down. So like the, 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 your, your visitation to that is, and I've, I've heard people talk about this again, I haven't experienced this, but this is always in the back of my mind is that, um, the, the, the people talking about deer patterning you, which I do believe that I've seen mm-hmm. that in other cases that I, I would, I would hypothesize that to be potentially true. So like in your case, but when you were talking about, um, putting your eggs into one basket, okay, you're talking about how, um, you're viewing a feeder and how a mature buck views a feeder, like that hunting strategy, ideology, like everything you're talking about, I can relate so much with, with food plots and the, the, that same mm-hmm. hunting style because I, I've been fortunate. I've had some very good luck killing uh, deer or being part of mature deer being killed on food plots. Um, one big change to that whole mix was uh, was was blinds was uh box mm-hmm. blinds for the for the main reason for where we're at in the state with the you know heavy deciduous forests and you, you know a lot of the time we're, we're dozing out food plots so you'll have this little opening in a in a hardwood closed canopy forest so you know you're going to create uh wind tunnels and you know pl- things like that as far as swirling winds topography has a big deal so we we deal with a lot of swirling winds so sitting on top of a food plot um is so hard when you're when you're trying to talk about consistent winds where we're at but box blinds change so much for that and you know you were talking mm-hmm. a little bit about that on your shows i mean do you have any 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 thoughts on that as far as relating that to to feeders i mean you were talking about that uh the two percent buck coming in and he came downwind i mean do you think you would have had that same close interaction if you didn't have um, a box blind sense. I, I know you were probably lacking in trees, but I mean, let's just use mm-hmm. the sheer fact of box blind versus not in that si- situation. I wonder what yeah. your experience has been in the past. 
Uh, in that situation, yes, the box blind, box blind probably did save me. Um, that being said, uh, they're not foolproof, uh, right. you know, when it comes to wind. And, I, and I've heard, like, um, you know, Bill Winky. I, I love Bill Winky. Um, just so much knowledge. But, you know, I've heard him say more than once that you're almost invisible in a box blind. Uh, I do not believe that. I have still been busted um, in box blinds, especially, you know, down here early season, you know, opening weekend, it might be 90 degrees still. And, you know, trying to close all the windows and sit in a, you know, basically a, a Chinese torture device, it's just not happening here. you got to mm. crack at least one window. Um, and so, yeah, do they help? Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt. But I also don't think they're foolproof. And oddly enough, my best hunting location on our place, where I killed my, my archery buck the last two years, is actually still an old-school tree stand. Um, it just has the perfect everything um it's it's actually a little further up in in the wide open bermuda grass pasture um but there's real thick timber on the neighbors and it just so happens that this creek kind of comes out at a 45 degree angle um and so uh it, it's a bait site there's no food plot because the cows would just tear it up so i have a feeder there that's fenced off from the cows um but i come over this hill and the creek sits so low that the trees that are along the creek edge basically block my view of that woodlot. So they can't see me coming in. I drop into that creek. I climb my, my tree is right on the edge of the creek and I have it set up to where the feeder is a little bit Southeast of the tree stand and down where I'm at, um, you're pretty much always going to have either a South wind or if there's a cold front coming in, you have a North wind. We hardly ever have east winds. We hardly ever have west winds. Like it's going to be one of those two. Mm. Uh, so I hunt this stand with a south wind, and basically uh, that creek just acts as the perfect little wind tunnel. And so the creek actually kind of pushes to the southwest. And even if the wind's a little off to the southeast, when I go in there for an evening sit, the thermals work just good enough to pull my foot down in that creek and push them off to the southwest. Um, so both the deer that I killed there the last two years, just like they usually do, they come out of that woodlot, they circle around to the south of that feeder, you know, downwind, they smell everything up above it, but that creek is just pushing my wind, I mean, just 20 yards to the, to the west of them, and, but they, they smell everything, they feel safe, they jump right in, and, and I've been successful there two years in a row. Uh, just because the the wind just works so perfectly, and again, that's just an old fashioned tree stand. So, you know, box blinds are great, but you don't necessarily have to have one if you have the right setup. Yeah, I I can definitely agree with that. I just think it's one of those toolboxes, tools in the toolbox that has helped me when you're talking about food source destination because like you said a, a prey species is vulnerable at those locations and you know another thing that you know you had mentioned on i wouldn't mind you digging into a little bit more is not only do they attract deer and game species they're a huge attractive for hunters i mean you put all that time and investment mm-hmm. into a food plot and you why wouldn't you want to sit it it's a usually a, mm-hmm. a high percentage place of seeing deer who who doesn't want to see deer right 
And uh, it, it can be extremely detrimental if you don't hunt it appropriately. And, you know, we were talking, you know, I say all the time, I don't want deer to see me, hear me, or smell me when I'm accessing two, I'm on stand, and I'm leaving. I want to minimize those three things as much as possible. So, you know, access is everything. You know, screened access for um, a lot of the places that I hunt is really important to be able to get in and sit right on a food plot and not bump deer when I'm leaving or coming in if there would be something there. So that's really, really huge for me. But um, I still feel like whitetails, we can't fathom their their sense that they have, especially their nose and their capabilities of figuring out the the timing of when we go and come from a place. And I still feel even when you've got your access in your mind pinned down as well as you can, I I, I still feel like there's only a certain percentage that they're going to tolerate before you're going to change it. And that's really hard when you talk about mature bucks. I mean, what, what's been your, your take on some of the places? Like how do you hone in on some of these locations? Are you using uh, cameras to tell you most of that? Or are you kind of use that as far as, uh, uh, history with with specific deer like what's been your take on that yeah cameras are huge um especially now with cell cameras i mean that is that is such a big advantage uh, like especially at a at a bait site like you mentioned uh, or a food plot you know wh- whatever it is um yeah being able to stay out until you have a very good chance that that deer is going to be there and that's the biggest thing like I said, whether it's a bait site, food plot, doesn't matter. If the if the buck that you want to kill is not there, there's no reason for you to be there either. Um, and that's one thing I had to really learn the hard way. Because, uh, again, you know, like, so if you go back to, like, my high school, college years, I didn't really grow up in a hunting family. Didn't, you know, YouTube wasn't a thing yet. So I, I learned a lot of this just kind of by the school of hard knocks. And um growing up so close uh well so i actually grew up in texas moved to oklahoma a little later uh but i was still hunting oklahoma because my grandpa had land there so i was hunting in oklahoma but kind of i was you know just grew up hunting that texas culture where you hunt a feeder and that's the only way you hunt that's how you hunt well being a poor high school student you know i couldn't afford to have all these feeders and so i had one feeder and so that was my hunting spot every single time i went I sat at that feeder, uh, you know, morning, evening, didn't matter, wind didn't matter. Um, and just over the years, you know, I, I kind of learned um, that I was hurting myself, you know, like the first time, you know, maybe I'd have Thanksgiving break. So I'd run up there and my first hunt, I'd see, you know, four deer. And then the next time I'd see two deer. And then I wouldn't see another deer, you know, I might see one deer there in my next three sits. Uh, so over time, I was kind of, just kind of figured out on my own like that i'm over hunting these spots and so that's why it's very important to have multiple spots that's why i have you know multiple feeders multiple food plots um and you just you have to be disciplined to stay out. as i mentioned before you know that uh the the two percent buck that i'm talking about again he's shrunk but in his prime i used to call him cr uh, which stood for county record because if i Killed that buck with my bow. I'm very confident he that he would have been the county record typical. Mm. Um, I I hunted that deer uh, maybe four times three years ago. Last year I think I hunted him two or three times, uh, and then this year I think I hunted him twice. Um, and again, that's running that feeder. That's having a tree stand. This year had that big expensive box blind. 
Um, and, and, and he was coming at night a lot of times, you know, like he'd come in there at night. But if that deer wasn't going to be there in the daylight where I could kill him, there was just no sense of me being there because I was only hurting myself. Mm. And it, and that's, it just, it just takes that discipline. Um, even with all that invested, you know, uh, you know, those box blinds aren't cheap. Feeders aren't cheap. Corn is super expensive now. Mm. Uh, but even with all that invested, I, I just had to stay away because if I wanted to kill him, that's what I knew I had to do. And again, so this year, uh, I, I think I hunted that box blind twice. Um, the first time I hunted, I ended up killing my, my buck with the muzzle loader. And then the second time I hunted it, I had that encounter with him. Uh, and, and I hunted that blind because the day before I had a picture of him like three minutes after legal light. Um, and again, you know, he came in right at last light, you know, the day that I saw him. Um, and so, yeah, and it sucks. I hate staying away, but it's just so important to have multiple spots you can hunt. Um, and even, like I said, I, I set up four different locations to hunt that one deer because I knew I couldn't just tie, tie it in. And, and one other thing I'm going to throw out while we're on this topic, um, Lindsey Thomas Jr. actually reached out to him about uh, coming on my podcast about this article he wrote. He wrote an article about basically how rutcations are hurting hunters. And I 100% agree with it. Mm. I have, I have never taken a true rutcation. The most I've ever hunted, I mean, you know, since I was in college or whatever. Um, but I rarely hunt more than three days in a row. Um, and some of that I would like to hunt more. I just, I have a family, I have a job mm -hmm. you know? and usually, usually I'm saving up my vacation time to, you know, go to Colorado or Idaho, or hopefully I'm going to draw Iowa this year. So I just, I, I, I tend to save my vacation time for those bigger trips. Um, but I think I still have great luck because I'm just not putting as much, uh, pressure on my property, you know, even peak of the rut, you know, I may take a Friday off work and hunt Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but then I'm leaving that property alone Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and maybe even next Friday till I'm hunting again. And I think that has kind of made me more successful. You know, I've heard a lot of the, the big time famous deer hunters talk about how hunting less yet killing more is a thing because you're choosing the right times. You're choosing the right conditions. And other than that, you're just staying out. Yeah, you're talking about being calculated, and being calculated mm -hmm. is is important, but it, it's hard. And mm -hmm. I think the the <clears throat> the on the surface topics that we talk about, you know, a lot of people have heard that and kind of understand the basics. But I like digging in and talking about those calculated moves and the, the how you process the things you learn on the property and the, what you've done and what you want to improve upon, and that that. Um, that a calculated adjustment, I think, is how we we learn because you, you're you're thinking, you're trying, you're probably bouncing stuff off of you know people that you respect, and then you're you're applying it, and you're just thinking outside the box yourself. And I, I kind of am curious, you know, you were talking about you had four spots set up specifically for that deer, and this year you finally had a mm -hmm. had an encounter with them. I know access is is tricky just because you have open open pasture in a lot of cases, so you probably have to play about. I mean, are you thinking? of any ways that you can either add or change food sources and maybe make mm -hmm. situations that, you know, maybe you either create a, a, a destination location that maybe is better that you can hunt or, you know, maybe a, a food source 
location change? Does that uh, create a stand opportunity um, between food and bed? Like, what what's been some of the things that's going through your mind that you're going to continue to to approach this deer or any, or any other mature deer that are on your mind for the upcoming season? Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> um, and again, I I am very limited because of the cattle. Um, you know, like trying to convince my dad and brother to give me three acres of prime grazing ground to, you know, fence off and make a food plot. Just that, that conversation doesn't go over well. Mm. Um, but just, uh, what's the Yeah. Just two days ago, um, I was out there planting switchgrass green, which this is my first time I've never planted switchgrass. Um, but, uh, yeah, two, two of my locations, I just plowed up a strip right between the pasture and the food plot and planted that switchgrass to try to get that screen working. Um, again, you know, with the box blind I talked about in, you know, in that cemetery pasture, I moved the, from the tree stand to the box blind. I mean, I moved that 400 yards and, you know, all of a sudden I had an encounter with him, you know, just trying to get closer. Um, I <laughs> I would love to, the property that I think he beds on actually came up for sale and I begged and begged my dad and brother to go in with it on me, but it's just, it's not a cattle property, it's a hunting mm-hmm. property. And so we didn't. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's the stuff that keeps me up at night. What could I tweak? Um, and, and I struggle with that the whole, you know, cause one thing I used to be really bad at is, is caring too much, you know, trying to improve stuff too much. And I'd go in there and I'd cut trees and, you know, try to make the food plot bigger and, and try to do a water hole. And I just completely change the landscape. And I would find those bucks, you know, kind of shifting, shifting mm. their range a little bit. And I think it's because I was putting too much pressure on there. So, so nowadays I try, you know, I, I, instead of going out there for two hours, I try to go out there for six hours and whatever project I'm working on, I try, if at all possible, to start and finish that project. Um, and then I'll move to, you know, I'll go work on a different location or something the next day. You know, wait a few weeks and then come back. You know, if I didn't get finished, I'd come back and, and finish later. Um, so just, you know, even in the off season, you got to be really careful while you're making these uh, improvements of just the human intrusion. Um, and, and I don't know the balance. You know, it's easier said than done, but you know, at some point you have to get the work done, you know, and if you have to go up there for two hours of time and do it, you know, I understand that. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, like I said, I can't help you with that balance, but I just know it's important. Well, that's really interesting because my experience has been very different in that. Um, I've been fortunate, like, I feel that when it's the off season, so basically from the time our season closes in January, from then up until about one month before season, I feel like most of the properties, and I, I actually I'm going to take that back, I'm going to feel like all the properties that I have the ability to tinker with and do stuff on, I can. I feel mm-hmm. though I can do just about whatever I want and need to on that property, whether it's hunting or not hunting related, and not have any detrimental impacts. And I feel like the, the things that I'm doing are trying to create a, a vacuum during hunting season because, it, you know, in theory, I'm going to have the, the food, the cover, and the security that deer want to have to be using that property in daylight. One thing that I'd be curious, though, and, and, and the, the first thing I have is, like you were talking about, 
the differences in, in your property that you're hunting compared to what I'm used to here, there's definitely a higher density of, of people. There's definitely mm-hmm. a lot more road structure and probably the interaction mm-hmm. with people in my location in the country is probably significantly different to where you are. So I think that's really unique um, that you're you're observing a different behavior or a different uh, handling of that uh, human pressure compared to what I'm experiencing. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, I've heard different theories on that. You know, uh, Lee Likoski, everybody's probably heard of Lee Likoski mm. in Iowa. Uh, you know, one thing he talks about is, consistent pressure yeah is where you know he's he's on his properties every day he wants to be there every day uh you know when he when he goes by a theater he presses the button to throw some corn out so they you know basically think of it as like a reward when he's there um and and i i and i can see that working that consistent pressure working um but i think you have to be in a, a pretty special situation for that to work you know if if you have to drive two or three hours to your property most likely that strategy is not going to work for you because you're probably just not going to be able to be there enough for them to get used to you. Um, and oddly enough, and kind of, I just thought of this while you were talking, I, the, I've seen a shift just on our property. So I think this is our, this was our sixth year of owning this property, I believe. And uh, when we first got this property, I felt like I could do whatever I want and the deer didn't really pay any attention to me. And I think it's because they had never been hunted. Like, you know, the previous owner didn't hunt. Um, there's a little bit of hunting pressure on the neighbors, and it, it's getting worse. Um, but it was not bad. And and so I felt like the deer were not very spooky at all. And then, But I think they've gotten more spooky um, because I'm hunting it more. Um, so, yeah, that, that's an interesting uh, interesting point well it's we're always tinkering like another thing that you know i'd be curious how you handle on your property um the topic of you know we're talking about access to stands we're talking about you know deer not seeing you hearing you smelling you um to and from stand locations but when you know you're talking about you know a thousand acres of your property you're using a vehicle of some sort to access through that property to some location um you know just the other day, I was out, you know, my, my day-to-day job this time of year, um, I'll be driving an, an ATV through crop fields. You know, I'll be looking at, right now, this past week, I've been looking at um, barley, winter wheat, uh, winter rye, triticale that's going to be taken for forage or for combining. And, you know, I'll be driving through, and, you know, this time of year, it's, it's you know, the sun's shining through those high-pressure bluebird days are so beautiful, and you can see a mile through open hardwood timber this time of year you know there's no kind of cover and it's amazing that when i'm driving through a field i'm not you know driving overly fast i'm not stopping i'm just driving in an open field hundreds of yards away from fields and i will see deer run out of those woodlots consistently while i'm driving that and it, it brings me to a point to say um i used to think that on the properties i hunted that you could drive um through your property and you can get deer conditioned to them. And I think you can to some degree under the right situations, like you were talking with Lee Lakoski and, you know, talking about good stimuli versus bad stimuli. But the thing that I noticed is I would sometimes see on my properties I hunted, I would see doe groups, fawns, sometimes young bucks 
uh, watch me go by and not really react and run off. Um, I've never, ever seen a mature buck do that. So that was one time I felt like I was getting deceived. But, you know, the, I, I brought up the, the springtime driving through and seeing those deer run. I actually feel that certain properties and certain stimuli, and I think it's all relative to what's in the surrounding neighborhood and how people use those machines to access and what the deer associate it with. Like, I think there's probably times where we're using equipment on certain properties and we're chasing deer and we don't even realize we're doing it. I don't know how that mm. relates to you, but it's just one of those things I'm thinking out loud, um, you know, in my neck of the woods. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, uh, my buddies and I talk about that all the time when we're elk hunting. Like, how many elk have we walked by and not see? <laughs> and uh, and yeah, like you know, you said chasing deer. Like, yeah, like you said, I mean, you could be literally chasing deer through the timber, and not know it because they just took off running before you got they got into sight of you. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Um, a good buddy of mine, the, the buddy that I hunt with in West Texas, um, he just uh, I guess last year bought an electric polaris ranger so an electric side by side mm-hmm. um and he's like adamant again so he he has this lease in west texas he's trying to manage deer um he if you're rifle hunting he wants you to have a suppressor uh you know just he's really trying to limit uh you know human intrusion um and i remember i was i was in my deer stand uh after the evening sit and he was coming back to pick me up and i heard this odd noise and I, I just couldn't place it and then all of a sudden i see his headlights come over a hill and i realized it was that range i, I was hearing the gravel under the tires before i was hearing the machine mm. um and you know I, I i guarantee you he probably wasn't spooking deer at that thing you know maybe the gravel but maybe not but uh you know a lot i know a lot of people are moving to e-bikes for getting in and out of their stands um and, and people are swearing by them um yeah, but, you know, that's something I battle all the time because, you know, unless you come up with a, a zip line system, you have to get to your stand somehow. Um, so I just think there's, you know, there's better ways than others. You know, can you drive around the field instead of driving through the field? Can you walk in from a downwind side? Um, yeah, there, there's just – and all those things that you need to be thinking of those things way before you're just going in there to sit in your stand you know that you, you gotta you gotta work that into all your preseason prep your stand placement and everything like that and i'm bringing all this up and we're, we're kind of just skirting back and forth and you know feeding off of each other in this conversation i bring this all up to for, for one main point i think it's a good way to kind of wrap this conversation up and that's you know we're talking about one philosophy in one part of the country another in another part of the country and you know you know people that we've respected in the hunting industry that have had good success and they're talking about this and you know you may differ in your opinion on how to access certain places but the 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 concept that i believe is if you're trying to hunt mature deer if you are trying your best to put yourself in a situation to put the best buck in your neighborhood in front of you during daylight hours, I personally would rather be a little bit more on the cautious side and, and give them the benefit of the doubt as far as my own intrusion than anything else. Because one thing we haven't even talked about, and this is a, probably a whole nother series of podcasts, is 
different deer are different behaviors and they tolerate different things based on their life experiences. I just talked about this on another episode. One of the deer that I was, I, I personally did not kill him, but uh, I got to watch this deer for a number of years through trail cameras. And then, uh, you know, one of my hunting partners was, was fortunate enough to wrap his tag around it. And that deer where he bedded was, he, he literally listened to us drive past him on a routine basis where, and the only reason I know that is because he took us into his bedroom and that's where he died. And I saw his beds and it was, it was so close to road and like what that deer put up with and the the amount of trail camera pictures and daylight hours where he would come out. And and I'm not talking about daylight hours as in the last half hour. It would literally be three or four hours toward the evening. He was bedding close and he, he just got comfortable with it. So, you know, you talk about access and what you can get away with. Well, yeah, you could get away with a lot with that specific deer, but in the grand scheme of things, I personally would rather be safe than sorry in the big picture. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, it comes, I think it comes back to that discipline that we were talking about earlier. Um, and, and it, it's hard because I feel like a lot of times you can't, you can't learn a buck's personality without physically seen you know it's hard to tell from trail cameras and stuff like that um and unfortunately you know a lot of these big bucks just most people don't get to see them that often um so it's really hard to learn um and can take a really long time but um but yeah definitely definitely something worth noting and and keeping notes of of uh you know how different bucks are acting are they more aggressive less aggressive you know that can play into you know, are they worth calling to or were they going to run from a call? Um, you know, I had a, a really nice deer. I think it was three years ago that, uh, uh, I saw him, he was on the neighbors and, and he was looking at our side of the fence, wouldn't jump, uh, it was, it was bow season. And so I, and again, very big mature buck. So I grunted at him and that deer took off running away faster than you can imagine mm-hmm. um and uh, you know like I, I, so i took from that like okay that is probably not an aggressive buck um and calling is probably not going to work um but yeah how you learn that with every buck i wish i knew um uh, but you're absolutely right they definitely have different personalities it's just part of the fun game of whitetail hunting it really is and you know you brought up a great point like if, if you're not if you're not experiencing mature deer in your hunting, like it's really hard to know what to do in order to get that. But like once you do something that puts you in the game, it's a learning experience. And like, it's like that first, it's like that first barrier, like into a a new world. Cause I mean, the properties around here that I've, you know, hunted with people or, you know, network with friends and stuff like that. Like it's, it's usually just understanding how deer behave in that area and how the hunting pressure that's in that area or on their property just needs to be manipulated a little bit in order to increase your, your, your chances. And it can be done. I mean, like I said, while there's, there's a lot of differences between Oklahoma and Pennsylvania, we're talking about a lot of the same things in, 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 a, in a little bit different draws, I guess, so to speak. Right, John? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, I feel like I need to throw this out here, too. There's been a – I've heard on several podcasts lately um, about, you know, Oklahoma and the good hunting and everything like that. I feel like I need a little – hunting in Oklahoma sucks. Uh, you, y'all should go to Kansas. 
you know, don't worry about coming down here. It's just, it's not worth your time. You know, that was a great episode you did with Dan talking about hunting regulations and such. I mean, uh, I, uh, you, you'll probably keep me out of Oklahoma just because the distance is, is not that conducive to drive there for the weekend. But, you know, I have, I have goals that I'd like to try to, you know, do some ad- adventure hunts. Like, here's the big one. Like, I know you said you might draw Iowa this year. I have mm-hmm. not gone down the rabbit hole of putting in my points for Iowa. Like I was just talking about this with my one good friend that I went to college with. It's like, hey, I w- would you have any interest in putting in points and going to Iowa? I'd like to experience it one year. And, he, and he, at first, he was like, yeah, let's let's do it. And then he goes, but you know, till we draw Iowa, we're gonna have close to a thousand dollars wrapped up into that, and that doesn't even include buying <laughs> the tag and this and that. And he's like, and we can just go to x y or z state and do the same thing we want to do i'm like you're right and i'm like i know but i, I just want to i just want to experience i just want to go to iowa and mm-hmm. bow hunt whitetails yeah. one time just to say i did it and experience mm-hmm. it i know it's not a 200 inch deer behind every bush but at the same time i, mm-hmm. I just love that the, the idea of hunting the whitetail mecca of the world yeah I, i'm the same way like i i have five points this year um which should be enough to draw. Uh, and I, I, I am going to Iowa knowing that I am more than likely not going to kill the biggest buck of my life. You know, I, I think, you know, I'm trying to be realistic about it and everything, but um, I'm going for the experience. You know, I am going to watch or hoping, you know, to see a doe run by and there will be eight different bucks, you know, trailing her, that crazy rut. That's what everybody wants to see. Um, and I would encourage, you know, it, getting started is uh is intimidating but you just gotta do it and after that it's really not that bad and i, I want to say a point is fifty dollars so five okay. points you know I, i'm, I'm two hundred and fifty dollars in at this point um and then yeah i think the i think a non-resident tag is around 700 bucks or something so so yeah i'll be all in about a thousand bucks um if i draw it uh, but you know, I, I kind of—it's kind of like financing, you know, fifty bucks a year for a while, and then and then kind of the big one at the end. Um, and and I'm fairly new to these venture hunts as well. Uh, you know, I've hunted Texas and Oklahoma both uh, for a while. Um, last year, Nebraska, I think that was actually my first, you know, real out of state uh, hunt. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I've had a Kansas point for like four years now and have yet to use it just because my vacation time and stuff hasn't worked out um but yeah I, i'd encourage anybody um to <laughs> i know there's probably a lot of people cussing me for encouraging people to get out there because it seems like every year there's more competition um but uh yeah it just you know do a little research um i, I believe iowa i believe they open it in may i believe it's may 1st to may 31st um and you know it it, it sucks it takes forever one year I forgot, <laughs> so I've actually been mm-hmm. uh, trying to get drawn for six years, but I only have five points because I forgot one year. Uh, but, man, just set a reminder on your phone, um, and, yeah, you know, if I go there and have a great experience, I'm, I'm, you know, I may never go back. I may go back. I don't know, but I'm, I'm just excited to experience it. And will you do something with an outfitter or something semi-guided? Are you going to do it all on your own and, and experience what you can? So I, I think I actually have a hookup. Um, a guy I met at ATA about two years ago. Um, he his cousin has come down and, and hog hunted on our place, and 
me and him just kind of hit it off. And so he said he thinks he could probably find me a place to hunt. Um, if that doesn't work out, I'm probably just going to do the public thing. Um, I know, I know a lot of people do end up going with an outfitter by the time that, you know, because they have so much invested in getting the tag. Um, but again, I, I'm kind of just in for it for the adventure. Um, I've, I've taken a lot of good whitetails. I just, for some reason, a, a guided whitetail just doesn't do it for me. Yeah, um, you know, I would happily, I would happily go on a guided elk hunt if I could afford it. Uh, bear hunt, same thing. Um, but for some reason, I, I, I'm just, I feel like I've been successful enough with whitetails that I think I'd just rather do it myself, even if that means not killing as big of a buck. Yeah, that's how I am too. Like whitetails, I love whitetails and you know, I've had good success with them and I feel like, why would I want to go, this is just me personally. Why do I want to spend money on a guide in another state for something that I literally hunt right out my back door and I'm hunting good deer. So it's just not some of the things, but like I, I went like the elk hunt that I did a couple of years ago was a guided elk hunt. Um, I killed a beautiful bull and it was a great experience. And now I'm like, you were talking about, I was thinking about this too. I'm, I'm trying to figure out my avenue for some of the other Western hunts I want to do. Like I'd like to shoot a nice mule deer with my bow. I'd like to shoot an antelope. We're doing this. And, you know, people always talk, well, once you start putting in for the Western tags, then you're going to want to start doing the sheep stuff. And I'm like, well, that's a rabbit <laughs> hole right there. I don't think that's yeah. going to happen, but I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm on that fine line there. Like, do I want to go a couple times and do it on my own school hard knocks experience the that western hunting and try to figure it out or do i just save my pennies and do i go with an outfitter i don't know i have no problem with an outfitter and and nobody that does i'm just like weighing those options out for what's best for me mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know if you if you pick the right state it's not too like i want to say wyoming i think a point in wyoming 50 bucks i want to say montana's the same um and to get one of those crazy you know trophy units yes you might have to put in for 20 years um but i've heard and experienced a little bit myself i think there's a lot to say for those like three and four point units you know um just limiting the pressure that much compared to just an over-the-counter tag um i think makes a huge difference now you may not shoot uh you know 400 inch six by six um but again, that experience, you know, you're more likely to hear a bugling bull, um, you know, more likely to call one in because they haven't been just called at, you know, a hundred different times mm. that day. Um, and so, yeah, uh, again, a lot of people are probably testing me for encouraging people. But um, so this, the elk hunt that I went on last year, that was actually the first draw hunt I'd ever been on. Um, I've done a lot of over the counter and I went, I went to college in Idaho and got a lifetime license. So I've, I've hunted Idaho quite a bit. Mm. Um, and, uh, but like right now I'm currently getting points in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, uh, and I believe Utah. Um, and I just kind of picked those states and going for it. Uh, I think the highest point total I'm at now is four, something like that, but you know, somebody told me a long time ago, uh, not a long time ago, but several years ago that, you know, it's never going to get easier. Um, there's never going to be less people putting in. And so the best time to start is right now. 
I, that's a good, very, very good point. And I think that's motivation for me to get my rear in gear and uh, finish the tag process that I started and didn't finish. But, uh, John, yeah. this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, like I said, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your show, um, over time. And, you know, there's, like I said, even though we're in different parts of the, of the world, the, the style of hunting and as far as the private land, you know, we like to tinker and do projects and preparation and, you know, and, and, and the style of hunting on stand and everything else. Like there, there's a lot of overlap there. And I, that's why I wanted to have you on and kind of just BS about deer hunting, but, but take that, that calculated approach and just peel the layers back and and what you've been experiencing so i really thank you for for coming on to our show uh before we let you go let's uh make sure you can uh plug everything you're doing or anywhere people can reach out and follow you absolutely um instagram is by far the best oklahoma outdoor podcast (laughs) somebody is done with the podcast oh man she is uh, yeah, Oklahoma Outdoor Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can also email me, okoutdoorspodcast at gmail.com. And just like you, part of the Sportsman's Empire, uh, my show comes out every Monday. And, uh, yeah, give it, give it a look sometime, guys. Absolutely. Hey, thanks again, John. Yes, sir. I'll see you later.